I think I'll begin with a moment of honesty. <laughs> that um, you know, I've worked at the Forest Refuge, been a teacher here since it opened, and have sat here month after month or week after week giving talks. But I've recently taken five months off and been away. And when I sat down to write this talk and to put it together, I found I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> I felt like I came back from my time off so deeply inspired. And when I tried to put that inspiration into some form, it just seemed to die on the page. And so I'm sharing this with you because I'm not really 100% clear where this talk is going to go. Um, I do have some notes. I did manage to do it that much, but I, I'm really not sure because um, huh, there were, I'm really talking. I'm going to be talking tonight about one aspect of my time off, which was my retreat time. But it came so kind of informed by what had transpired in the time before that, and the time before that was very rich in its depth of really, I mean, in some ways, being in the muck of what it is to be a human being. And to, you know, just have a, becoming close to, immersed in some of the challenges that are there. You know, you know I spent a good deal of time in Asia. And, you know, there, death and birth. It's not covered over, these whole processes, gain and loss. You know, life is just there as it is with no sugar coating on it. And, you know, that, that in itself has a starkness and, and just has a way of reaching the psyche. Um, you know, just seeing what it takes to just even survive. You know, to care for oneself, watching people and what they went through, just to meet the basic requirements of life. And then just to have a body, and my own body was giving me many lessons <laughs> on the fragility of life. You know, that, you know, many moments where it was on the edge with what was happening. And it, there was. Um, also, uh, <laughs> as you can see, it's not completely formed. Um, the, the, in going into retreat, you know, I just had the sense of my heart quivering with compassion for what it is to be a human being. And my life had also been touched by the death of a loved one. And, you know, that was just potent, as it always is when it touches our life. There's such a poignancy. You know, the, the fabric of complacency, the fabric of the illusion of permanence is just broken apart. And so, you know, I went into this retreat feeling it was interesting. Like, like the heart was just trembling. You know, literally, I could feel it at times. And yet there was, 
you know, the, all of my years of, of doing this practice, of looking, and whatever wisdom has come, and not to make it into, into anything great and wonderful, but enough knowledge, enough balance there to really be present with the process. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about this practice and the potential of this practice, you know, it's like some pie-in-the-sky thing. And, you know, in putting this talk together was just this desire, no, no, that's not it. It's about our lives. It's about what's here and now. And, you know, how, I was just wrestling with how do we keep it in this realm of what we're sitting with here and now, you know, whether it's simply knee pain, back pain, whether it's some deeply habituated torment in the mind, to know that, you know, this is really what being human is about. And this is what we work with in our practice, to wake up amidst all of this. You know, it's not about some refined state. It's not about something that's removed and far away. It's about fully opening to and experiencing what's here and now. I didn't know if I would share this, but I think I will (laughs) since I'm here. Um, So this was a poem that actually came from the end of my retreat. It's called... On being human. My heart aches for us all. It's so hard to be human, to love, be loved, to make mistakes, to forgive, to not be self-centered. It's so hard to be human, to feel lost, confused, bowled over by one's own mind, voices of your family, reactions from your neighbors, Complexity of the universe just to survive. To know moments of freedom, the scent of peace, the quiver of compassion, the joy of sharing, the connection of kindness, the relief of non-attachment, the understanding that flickers, both sides of the coin, the aches and the joys of the heart, no way to turn one's back on one or the other, knowing them right here, right now, just as they are, the fullness of this human life. Actually, in the beginning when I shared about not quite knowing where this was going, there was kind of going to be a warning to those of you who have linear minds that, you know, there may be a few jumps to take tonight. And so if you are of, you know, that's your, the way that your mind has been operating in the linear realm, I invite you to just relax, settle back, and just see if out of what I say, some, some picture can emerge. <laughs> might be more of a tapestry. <laughs> and if it doesn't emerge, you can always ask me questions later. <laughs> but anyhow, we may be jumping around a bit.
So, to start with, on being human, welcome to this body and mind. In our practice, the journey of looking into what it is to have this body and mind and how we can find peace and ease with it. So one of the things that I found when I entered into my retreat, and I really felt like on this particular retreat, I went with strong motivation. And, you know, in a sense, I felt like, you know, if I was a rocket, all the engines were firing. And what was interesting to me was, even with all that momentum, all that sense of motivation, I still found I was frequented by a couple of visitors. And for me, they were laziness and restlessness. And so, tonight I want to speak a little bit about how we can find inspiration for practice amidst some of the stumbling blocks that might occur as we're here. I'd like to... uh, talk a little bit about both laziness and restlessness first, since I was becoming intimately acquainted with them. You know, it's certainly not the first time they'd appeared in my experience. Um, I think they are my um, karmic tendencies. And certainly over the years, how they've been experienced has changed. And I think that, you know, they're not just something that's unique to me, that's something that many of us may share. So uh, just to speak a little bit about them. And to go first to something that Buddha said about laziness. He gave eight grounds for laziness. So I'd just like to share pieces of this with you. He says, there is the case where one has some work to do. The thought occurs, I will have to do this work, but when I have done this work, my body will be tired. Why don't I lie down? So they lie down. (laughs) One doesn't make an effort for the attaining of the as yet unattained, the reaching of the as yet unreached, and the realization of the as yet unrealized. And this is the first grounds for laziness. And all of these different cases are going to be followed by this last part, this last section. But uh, um, I'm just going to point to the pieces about where we might find uh, grounds for laziness. Then there is a case where one has done some work. The thought occurs, I've done some work. Now that I have done work, my body is tired. Why don't I lie down? Then there is a case where one has a journey to go on. The thought occurs, I will have to go on this journey, but when I have gone on the journey, my body will be tired. Why don't I lie down? Then there is a case where one has gone on a journey. The thought occurs to them, I have gone on a journey. Now that I have gone on a journey, my body is tired. Why don't I lie down? Then there is a case where one, having gone for alms in a village or town, does not get as much coarse or refined food as one needs to fill oneself up. 
the thought occurs. I've gone for alms in a village or town and have not gotten as much coarse or refined food as I need to fill myself up. The body of mine is tired and unsuitable for work. Why don't I lie down? Then there is the case where having gone for alms in a village or town, uh, one does get as much coarse or refined food as one needs to fulfill oneself up. The thought occurs to oneself, I have gone for alms in a village or town, have gotten as much coarse or refined food as I need to fill myself up. This body of mine is heavy and unsuitable for work. (laughs) Why don't I lie down? Then there is a case where one comes down with a slight illness. The thought occurs to oneself. I have come down with a slight illness. There's a need to lie down. So one lies down. Then there is a case where one has recovered from one's illness. And not long after this recovery, the thought occurs to them. I have recovered from my illness. It's not long after my recovery. This body of mine is weak and unsuitable for work. Why don't I lie down? (laughs) So these are said to be the eight grounds for laziness. And I know when I read them, first read them, it was something I could readily relate to. How, you know, it's either in fear of what might come to be, so resting so one will be rested in case of, or having done, even if one doesn't check in and and there be, you know, a complete state of exhaustion, we can just so easily mentally tire ourselves out or, you know, have this sense of needing. And one of the things I've seen in my own mind is how... And this happens through the course of a busy life. Um, it happens in, you know, through the course of practice. It's like looking where the next opportunity for rest will be, you know, and trying to map that out. Uh, <clears throat> on retreat, we'll find it in different ways. These unstructured retreats are really good for it and just to see where it arises. You know, some people really struggle with just getting out of bed in the morning. You know, it's like waking up, whether you're using an alarm, whether you're, you know, just waking up, but waking up and then, oh, you know, if I just rest a little bit more, my practice will be much better. Um, you know, and I've heard of and I've seen in my own mind just this battle that can go on. And the process of getting up can actually become quite long, where one wakes up, uh, uh, can't quite do it, back to sleep, wake up, uh, uh, no, uh, not yet. You know, and then, and then at some point guilt starts coming in, and then you know, finally something moves us out of bed. Um, it can be a real battle, a real challenge. Or maybe the first thing in the morning isn't the time we're faced with that. But then at some point in the day, there's a sense of a nap. Just lay down. And I, you know, just in saying this, I don't want to say that there's not times where we don't need sleep, we don't need rest. But I'm talking more about the habituated mind that's really groping for... Um, for that pleasure of sleep, you know, that 
reprieve that we can often get from sleep. And that is a form, you know, really a form of laziness. And so, you know, for some of us, it might be a nap in the day that, that is um, you know, just hard, again, where the battle in the mind starts happening and where, you know, a tendency. You know, so that can be kind of a, uh, a more apparent form where we might experience some kind of laziness. But, you know, laziness gets more clever. Maybe we've done a lot of retreats. We've worked with a structure, in structured retreats. Uh, maybe we've worked with some of the Asian teachers who are really strict. And so we found a way to be disciplined, to turn up, you know, to get up, you know, first thing in the morning, to sit, to walk, to sit, to walk. But in our minds, we're in la-la land, you know, that we've got one form of it, but in another way, we're not turning up to the present moment. We're, we're not connecting with what's happening. And then laziness can also get even a little bit more clever. And it can start to mask itself as acceptance. And so I'll give you an example of what I'm meaning. That um, it could be with the thinking mind. Because we do hear over and over, Thoughts are a natural process, something the mind does. And, you know, we're encouraged not to get reactive when we see thoughts in the mind, but to know. And that really is wisdom. But it can translate into, oh yeah, thoughts are here. It's okay. You know, but in that, you know, there's kind of a subtle indulgence in them. And not really, there's not the freshness of mind that's knowing it. That really is where the wisdom is that knows this is just a thought. It's, you know, just like, oh yeah, it's okay. It's a fake acceptance. And, you know, it can just be a laziness. You know, there isn't that willingness of heart and mind to really know this experience. I just have, in you know, even on this recent retreat, been. Well, I have I have a better relationship now with these states than before. But just interested to see the different faces that will appear, the different ways it will manifest. Um, you know, in speaking about it is it's to help us to know that yeah, this happens. The mind gets slippery. It gets tricky. And I will be speaking a little bit about how to work with that. The other frequent visitor that I mentioned was that of restlessness. And this too, it just amazes me because, you know, this retreat that I was just on, there had been a lot of work put into getting there, as probably many of you have done in getting here. 
you know, we know it takes a lot to make the space in one's life for extended periods of practice, whether that in our life is one week, one month, one year, it doesn't matter. It can take a lot to have the conditions come together to do that. And, you know, we do that because we recognize this is something of value. Um, And then, you know, we can find that, you know, get on retreat, there we are, and then suddenly, hmm, and think of all the other places we'd rather be or we think we'd rather be or find that we're just really caught in thinking about our lives and we're you know really not on retreat at all we're lost in in a level of agitation in the mind or an itching to do something else could even be planning our next retreat I have a teacher, Minja Rinpoche, he's a Tibetan teacher, and he talks about how when he was young, he was, uh, you know, he grew up in a family that had a lot of wise beings in it. He had exposure to a lot of people with a lot of wisdom, readily access to meditation instructions. And he talked about, he talks about how he liked the idea of meditation and the promise that it represented, but he really didn't like the practice. And I think sometimes that's our experience. You know, we we, um, really like the idea of going on retreat, but then when we come and we're faced with, you know, rampant thoughts in the mind, bodies going numb in different places, aches and pains, uh, you know, torrents of emotions coming through, suddenly meditation doesn't seem like all it's cracked up to be. And, you know, this, um, this can really lead to restlessness. Ninja Rinpoche described himself as the model of a sincere practitioner who never practices. That was in his youth. (laughs) He's done a lot of practice since. But, you know, that's where we become, fall really in love with the idea. But here we are, faced with this time to practice. With restlessness, it too can be strong or subtle. You know, when restlessness is strong, there's a lot, can be a lot of anxiety, frustration, aversion. You know, sometimes in restlessness, you know, we just don't want to be here. We want to be doing something else. Or we can find it manifesting in the practice by not being able to settle on a way of practice. You know, sitting down, I'll be with the breath. Be, start to be with the breath. No, I should have open awareness. No, no, I think I need a little metta right now. Oh, but actually there's a lot of suffering. I think compassion would actually be closer. And, you know, as, just as we shift, every time we shift, it, it just exacerbates that sense of restlessness. And, you know, restlessness, when we identify and feed it, is really a torturous state. You know, it is so agitated, so... <laughs> So, so unable to touch this moment. Well, it can also be on the side of excitement. You know, um, that it could be that we've been practicing and we see something 
in a new way. And with it, it's like, wow, look at that. You know, and then suddenly, you know, there's this huge surge of energy that isn't grounded and, you know, that can go into the thinking mind. And it's like, wow, I've really seen this. And we might then start extrapolating it onto all other experiences in life. Or, you know, we might suddenly see this profound wisdom that we're just going to share with everybody. And then we're a Dharma teacher and then we're starting a center, you know, and, you know, it just gets all the energy goes into the the mind and, you know, (laughs) connection with present moment experience is just gone. Restlessness, you know, also comes about with something that's very common in practice where we really try too hard, you know, and that trying too hard has an edge of an agenda, you know, that um, it's like seeking immediate results or or you know, or a form of greed, grasping, wanting, and it just puts the mind into this really agitated state. But there's also a more subtle level of restlessness, you know, that really comes just from the conceit of I am, and this kind of ceaseless tendency of the mind to become or identify with the experience. And it just leads to this very subtle sense of uneasiness. And you know that too becomes more apparent as we practice. So you know sometimes in practice these states become more apparent. And what we want to watch is that we don't identify with them and define ourselves by them. And then they become something solid, immovable, unworkable. And really, they're going to be a part of the terrain that we're journeying through, whatever our habituated tendencies are. So on my retreat, as I was at times faced with both laziness and restlessness, there was a couple of things that were really helpful to me. And so just wanting to share a bit of that with you. One of the things I have definitely learned is that in the face of these, a forceful, willful effort doesn't help so much. In fact, it can really exacerbate the suffering. You know, it's often based in either greed or aversion and um, sense of self and the energy that comes from it isn't sustainable. So, you know, in the long-term course of looking at these states of mind, needing to tap into the resource of energy that comes from within, that isn't manufactured, but that really comes from stepping closer to the truth of the way things are. Obviously, the first 
way of working with any of these challenges, any challenges you may have, is through awareness. Know that um, all of us here have done practice before. We have some familiarity with the power of mindfulness and just what a strong support and refuge that can be in our lives. And, you know, always for me, that's the first place. Can I be aware of it? Can I be present with this? You know, just, and that can be really uncomfortable when you take state like restlessness, just to be aware of it. And because it is really unpleasant. The good thing about restlessness is I haven't yet heard of anyone who've died from it. So it is something that, you know, a real, it's a way of learning to be with really unpleasant experience in order to understand, in order to find the freedom within it so that we are not ruled by it, not run by it, not overcome by it. And, you know, so that happens when we start to bring support to being with through the non-reactivity in the mind of mindfulness. Being able to allow this to be, but be aware of, to recognize what is transpiring, what is present. We really find that when we start to be able to do this, we get the scent of truth. And out of that will come energy, inspiration. Out of that comes a lot of joy, even when it's unpleasant. Because there is a deepening wisdom, a wisdom that can hold the suffering that is not broken by it. We find as we begin to see the power of awareness and we see the effect that it has in our lives, our sense of faith strengthens, our confidence strengthens. And yet, there's still these times when it falters, when maybe we feel like we just can't meet it with awareness alone. That the mindfulness is not strong enough in itself in that moment, for whatever reasons. And to know this is something that happens, you know, because we are working with deep habits in the mind. And that, you know, there needs to be a strong power to break that trance. You know, there's a, we keep keep getting caught in this confusion, not seeing clearly, and enchanted by experience. And that, you know, it's like needing to wake up out of that. But, you know, just as when we're in deep sleep, sometimes that pull is so strong. So sometimes mindfulness in the face of these habits isn't supported enough. 
in that present moment. doesn't mean it's always like that. And that's, again, watching that we don't define ourselves. Oh, I can't do this. It's too, you know, this is too strong. It's just a moment where maybe it's not enough. Maybe we're going to have to look in another way to what's going to help us get in touch in a way that is transformative in this moment. You know, especially when laziness or, you know, you could call it apathy or um, complacency, when it's present in the mind, one of the things that's really helped me is to remember why it is that I'm practicing. What's what's, What's our motivation? You know, in coming here, what's your motivation? Or even at home, what... What is it that is pulling you to look more deeply? Sometimes it has words. Sometimes it's more of a felt sense. You know, it might come out of a sense of possibility. It might come up, that possibility can even arise when we've been through a period of immense suffering. Maybe we've come in contact with sickness, old age, death, you know, the heavenly messengers, and it's touched our lives in some way. And yet there was a spaciousness that sensed that, oh, there can be, even in the midst of that, peace and ease. It might be that we met somebody in our life and they were just a little bit different. I remember this happening when I was about 16 years old. I met somebody and I, I, I couldn't even hardly put my finger on it. But I, there was just a sense that this person was living a little bit more consciously, taking a little bit more care. I remember talking to this person and you know, when he spoke to me, he was right there. He was really present. And that, you know, that really spoke to me in some way. Or maybe we met a teacher who you know, has, is really embodying wisdom, compassion. You know, and it's like you can feel it sometimes in being with people. And it's just like it resonates within. And, you know, we can hold it as them up there, or we can see that, yeah, you know, they're a person, I'm a person, they can do it, I can do it. You know, that it can really resonate from within. So I found it really helpful at times to remember why it is I'm practicing. You know, and on this last retreat, when that thought would come to mind, and, it, you know, moment of waking up in the morning, and that, that, you know, I speak as one of those people that at times it's been really hard. But something about in those moments to recognize What's motivating me? It's really helped me to get up. Or, you know, 
as I get lost in some pleasant, lovely thought. And I see that the pull keeps being back there to remember. Because there's a bigger picture here that we can often lose touch with. And when, when that motivation is really alive for us, this too feeds our energy for practice. And this motivation is something that will actually clarify as we practice. At times, it might not seem so clear. You know, and many, many people, uh, when I talk about motivation, can go, ah, I don't know why, <laughs> why I practice. I don't, you know, it's never been a big movement for me. Um, you know, it's not like a great calling. I just do it because I think I should. <laughs> and that can be good enough. <laughs> but what, I, you know, what I've seen is it clarifies as we practice. You know, because then we're, if we're paying attention, we really begin to see if we don't turn up for our lives, we can cause so much pain. You know, we're just not aware of what we're doing. And before we know it, we've said something really hurtful. We've done something that um, hurts somebody else, hurts ourselves. And there's just complete regret. But if we're paying attention, there's more choice. We're not just habitually moving. We start to both see what it's like when we do something that does cause harm, and what it's like when we can renounce, when we aren't identified, attached to, aren't hungering after something. We really get to touch into the part of ourselves that just wants to be happy. You know, and in some way, don't make that a big deal. It's there, you know, and it's, it, it just, it's a natural instinct, a natural calling. And we lose touch with that in our confusion. Or we start seeking happiness in misguided ways. Just because we don't know. But it becomes clearer as we practice. Hogan Sun, he was a Zen teacher of mine. He used to often talk about uncovering our deepest bow. And I've really had a sense of that. And then, you know, through our practice, we're really learning to live in alignment with that deepest vow, an honoring of it, so that it's reflected in our lives. within our motivation for practice, I've also always found it helpful to remember that the practice that we do here is not just for the benefit of ourselves, that it can really be done to benefit all beings everywhere. Our practice can have 
the effect of rippling out into our lives. You know, and we see this just in little instances where maybe uh, we have been in conversation with somebody and they're really angry and they yell at us. And in that moment, we have the wisdom to not take it personally. We remain balanced. And just in that, you know, balance, there's an effect where it's not two people locking heads. And you know, that can often be felt by the other person. We can, oh. find that, you know, for myself, it was just, it was, is, the, the seeing that the more that I can turn up in my life, the more I'm present for others, the more I'm not fueling the habits of mine, perpetuating perpetuating that which leads to suffering. Others' lives get touched, even if it's through example. Not even, it's wonderful when it's through example, not just words. And that, that, knowing that, that, you know, I see practice, you know, we come because we care. We care deeply. And we're willing to let go of so much in our lives to look, to inquire. And this is a great generosity of heart. Marcia spoke about this in her talk the other night on generosity. You know, this, this brings great joy to practice, to be motivated to the alleviation of suffering for ourselves, the world at large. For lost and confused, how are we going to help? But by doing this work here, this can really lead to understanding that unbinds the heart. So our motivation for practice, if it isn't something that you've ever given much thought to, I would suggest that maybe at times just sitting with the question, what motivates me? Seeing what arises, don't try to figure it out, listen. Feel the heart. Why are you here?
And then, you know, if there's times when you're faced with challenges and you don't feel the energy to work with it, look again. Can you remember why you're doing this? Because really, sometimes in the thick of it, we forget. We just... I remember somewhere in the midst of a retreat, I think it was a, the three-month retreat over at INS, someone raised their hand one day and said, can you remind me why I'm here? <laughs> and, you know, I think many of us could say that at times. We just forget. And so, you know, there's a way that we take for granted. There's a way that there's a complacency can move in. There's a way that we just get lost. But if you connect with what's motivating you, it can bring, you know, it's like that, right, okay. Another reflection that really helps is reflecting on that of impermanence. That of the fact of life that all conditioned things are impermanent. It's always a tricky one because we, you know, because we don't see clearly, there's the illusion of continuity. I mean, yeah, on many levels we accept impermanence, accept change, you know, many grosser levels of change in our life we see all the time. But there's many places where we don't live our lives from the truth of the understanding of impermanence. And this, again, is where we're going to move into complacency, where, you know, you know taking life for granted, we're not going to turn up. Because we forget that these conditions, and, you know, look right in this moment at the conditions we have, the support we have, for practice. And even just this here right now, we don't know when it will change. You know, we can come on a retreat. We don't know when that phone call could come that suddenly we can't be here anymore. Or things just shift. Body does something. You know, it doesn't have the strength. Um, We just don't know. Impermanence, you know, I've seen in my own mind how often, oh, yeah, yeah, I know impermanence, I know, I know. But when it's really there, it's so awakening. It just, you know, it cuts through. It breaks the trance. You know, contemplating impermanence will bring us into contemplating death. This is a form of change, birth and death. Said to be one of the most powerful teachings to contemplate death. To really realize that this body-mind, as we know it, one day will cease to be. And... You know, in reflecting on it, 
It's not to take us into fear, panic, grasping, but to see our reactions too. To see, I mean, so much in our lives, we are driven by the fear of death. But we don't even see that. We don't know that. It's not apparent. And can have, you know, and, you know, often we sanction in our mind as if we're okay. You know, if that happens, we're okay. But it's good to really let the mind reflect. And so as I'm speaking about these reflections, you know, bringing to mind these particular aspects or facts of life, really, that uh, I know for myself for many years I didn't use any form of reflection at all. No, and that, that I didn't know how to, in a sense. But then what I, because I, and I also believed that it was just the conceptual mind, and so it was going to leave me on the level of concept, and therefore was not really worthy. And yet in doing reflections, have found that when we use thought with mindfulness, we're using the thought to turn the mind in the direction of truth, not fabricating any, you know, rational explanation of, but just pointing the mind towards truth and do so in the presence of awareness that what transpires is very rich. And, you know, it gives a space for unacknowledged feelings to arise. Uh, it, it, it helps us to... Um, see things we might not have seen. It helps us to come closer in our minds to what is. And, and, you know, as I found these on my retreat, it was also what helped to really bring the mind to that willingness to be with this moment. with impermanence, reflection of. I mean, the world outside right now, you can't get a more direct teaching. And, you know, it's to really see, you know, to see this change that's happening in the outer world. And to recognize that this reflects all conditioned things. All conditioned things are impermanent. And, you know, sometimes the seeing it in the outer world helps us to be more at peace with the change as we experience it. With even this body, you know, I certainly, uh, in the changing of the colors of autumn, you know, the beautiful oranges, um, yellows, the reds, the, you know, very beautiful. And then 
and I look in the mirror and I see a new brown splotch. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, oh yeah, this <laughs> change. This, this is the way things are. And I know on the other le- levels, it's like recognizing that this is the way. This is na- the natural course of things. And then we don't take it so personally. And we don't try so desperately hard to cling to that which by its very nature is subject to change. You know, when we look at nature and might look at something like hurricanes, avalanches, um, you know, huge swells in the ocean, just the, the earth we're living on right now and the weather, it's just subject to so many dynamic forces. And these are the forces. These are natural And, you know, when we can really just learn that this life coursing through is a very dynamic process, always changing. And then we stop looking for that happiness. We stop trying to grasp at these experiences as being where happiness can be found. And we learn to relax, to be at peace, at ease, So, this practice, this retreat, meditation, it's really the stuff of being human. All of it. There's a line from a poem, and I forget which poem it is, but the line is coming to mind, no part left out. What's here? What's now? This is the place that the Dhamma reveals itself. The suffering, the sorrow, the joy. not looking for some other experience. It's being with what is, as it is. This is our teacher. This is where we can learn. As we get discouraged, feel stuck, looking to what helps us be present, turn up, 
finding within us that courage to awaken. So let's just sit for a moment. And closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings, 